The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Previously on Stranglers. Were you the one that discovered her? She went in and she comes running back. Her hands are up. I think she's dead. She's dead. She's dead. Mrs. Schlesser's, a retired seamstress, had been strangled manually. Then the belt from her housecoat had been twisted about her neck. By the end of June 1962, three women had died. Their murders were like nothing Boston had ever seen. Savage killings made more horrible by their repetition. We had had other killers. We'd had other murders. But we had no serial killer as this appeared to be. The city was afraid. Afraid of strangers at the door, afraid of strangers on the street, afraid of each other. There is fear in Boston. Not only salesmen, but even police find it difficult to gain admission to houses. That these good women should come to such a death is a terrible pity. It's heartbreaking, and it's petrifying. This is the story of 13 brutal murders committed in Boston between 1962 and 1964, and the decades-long hunt for the killer, or killers. This is New England. From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmick. Articles of silk or satin. The killer was hiding inside the apartment. It's the unknown that we fear. Episode 2, Fear in Boston. Good afternoon, Portland. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Who was Ida Erga to you? She, my grandmother, my father's mother. This is Debbie Amadi. She's a 64-year-old retired librarian. When we spoke recently, she was in her living room. The floors were carpeted. There were a few prop-up TV dinner tables and a lazy boy. I wanted to talk to her about Ida Erga, her grandmother. Well, she looks what you think a grandmother should look, you know. Gray hair, you know, dressed conservatively. When she came to visit us, you know, she always tended to wear long skirts. How would you describe her? Like, what kind of a person was she? She's definitely a person with fortitude. I mean, you'd have to be to leave your home country with your two-year-old son. That had to be scary. So she had to be, I, I say I have to use the, use the word brave to describe her. Ida Ergo was born in 1888 and emigrated to the U.S., settling in Boston in the 1920s. What country was she from? This is Russia. Technically, it was Ukraine. They lived in a town called Polona, which was near, uh, I believe, Odessa. World War I was responsible for over 17 million deaths. And from 1914 to 1918, the western part of the Ukraine, where Ida Erga lived, was caught in the geographical crossfire between Russia and Austro-Hungary. Then as World War I ended, a brutal civil war broke out in the Ukraine. For the better part of a decade, Ida Erga had lived in the center of a war-torn country. 
Sometime during the Civil War, she got married and became pregnant. But her husband died of typhus before the baby was born. And then in the spring of 1922... When my father was two years old, four of them got passage on a ship to the New World. And in, in their party was uh, my father, my grandmother, my father's grandmother, and his Aunt Ronia, or Ronnie as we called her. They arrived at Ellis Island, then headed north to join Ida's brother in Boston, where Ida Erga found work in a factory. A chocolate factory, and my father told me the story, you know. So she'd pick up a chocolate, put one on the conveyor belt now and then, put one in her mouth. Just so. like I Love Lucy. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. And then. Ida's son Joseph earned a Ph.D. from MIT, and in 1952, Debbie was born. Ida's first grandchild. Today, Debbie fondly recalls her grandma babysitting her, feeding pigeons on the rooftop of her Beacon Hill apartment building. The two of them were close. One time, I hit her false teeth. You hid her false teeth? I hid her false teeth because I thought they just plain hilarious. And where did you hide them? I hid them in the bathroom upstairs, this place uh, on the shelf. So I made a big show. Hey, I found them. And how did she react? She kissed me. She's happy to get him back. That visit happened in 1962. And while she was there, Ida talked to her son about the Boston Strangler murders. She told my father, you know, old women had been murdered in Boston. And my, my father didn't really, you know, didn't pay too much attention to that, you know, because he knew she was a very cautious person. And she wouldn't let a stranger into the house and she's, she knew there was a danger out there, and she, she was very wary. On Sunday, August 19, 1962, Ida met a friend on the Boston Common. Sunday afternoon, she liked to take walks in Boston. She'd get all dressed up, you know, dress, girdle, et cetera, the whole works. She said, she said to me, I looks good. The next day, she planned to visit her sister, Ronnie, the same sister she'd emigrated with to the U.S., but Ida never made it to Ronnie's. Do you remember how you found out that she had died? Yes. Um, we were supposed to go into the city. We had tickets to see a movie. Well, uh, the day before we were supposed to go was when uh, my father got the call that his mother was dead. How did your parents explain your grandmother's death to you? They told me she died of cancer. And for years I felt guilty. Why did you feel guilty? Because I thought maybe my hiding her false teeth might have killed her. Really? <laughs> really. <laughs> I was only I was 10 years old, so what did I know? I thought, you know, did I poison her son? Did I do something to her? I didn't find out what really happened until uh, I was entering college. And that's when my father told me what really happened. When Ida didn't show up at her sister's place, her sister Ronnie called the building superintendent, who sent his 13-year-old son with the passkey. Whoever opened her apartment would be greeted by the sight of her spread legs and genital area. This is Susan Kelly author of the book, The Boston Stranglers. Her body was left nude with her feet propped up 
on two chairs. It was a deliberate attempt to degrade the victim and throw as much shock and horror as possible into whoever found her body. Debbie Amati is 64, but she still thinks about the movie they were supposed to see that day, The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. Now then, when it appears in Turner Classic Movies, I look at it and I'll think of my grandmother. And when I think about that, you know, sometimes I do feel a little sad, like I'm feeling right at the moment. Debbie's grandma had fled the horrors of war. She had worked her whole life to provide for the family she loved. Then, at age 75, Ida Erga became the fourth victim of the Boston Strangler. When the police arrived at Ida Erga's apartment the evening she was killed, the scene was familiar. A pillowcase tied around her neck, her body deliberately posed, evidence of sexual assault, but no semen. This killing fit the pattern of the three that came before, including the fact that the killer had left nothing behind and taken nothing with him. If the killer had taken a watch or a camera or a piece of jewelry, then police could trace that object. In the absence of that, the police moved on to the microscopic. They wondered if the killer had left behind hairs from his body or trace amounts of blood. They took Ida's rugs, her blankets, and her linens. They sent these items to the Boston Police Department's laboratories to check for samples. Okay, this is uh, the jacket worn by our suspect. So we just got to get this to the DNA lab, have them confirm it is our victim's blood, and then... Case closed. Oh, cool. Today, our image of homicide investigations is colored by countless cop shows where scientists and police labs solve almost any mystery, and the police always close their case. But that's not how it works in the real world of actual police work, and it certainly wasn't the world of the early 1960s. What did they have for tools back then? Not much. This is Sergeant Bill Dugan, head of the Boston PD's cold case squad. I hate to lay this in on you. However... We don't like to call it the cold case squad. That's a TV term. I went to visit him at Boston Police Headquarters, where he oversees cases that were never officially solved, like the Boston Strangler murders. Internally, you call it... Unsolved Homicides Squad. The Unsolved Homicides Squad. It used to be called the Special Homicide Investigative Team. Uh What's the acronym there? Special Homicide Investigative... (laughs) We don't call that... We don't call it that anymore. The... When I first came back as a supervisor... Sergeant Dugan is the closest thing we have to an investigator who is still working the Strangler case. And even that is a stretch, since he isn't actively working on it. He makes himself available for people who might call up with leads, which after 50 years doesn't happen very often. As you'd expect someone on the force would do, Sergeant Dugan defends the work of the Boston PD back in the day. They didn't have DNA. They could do blood typing. They could do fingerprints. But that... Again, you're talking 1962, 1963, 1964. There were still tubes in TVs. 
I can go upstairs on the computer right now and I can find pretty much anybody on the computer. They didn't have those back then. They had to hand search files, hand search cards. It was a tremendous amount of manual labor involved. I asked Sergeant Dugan if I could see the Strangler police files. He said he wasn't allowed to show them to me because aside from the Mary Sullivan case, the Strangler murders remain unsolved. So we're about five minutes away. Okay, great. We'll see you soon. Okay, bye. Fortunately, the police are not the only ones who kept files on the case. Hi, John. Hi. I went to see John DiNatale. I like your house. He's been a private investigator in Boston for more than 40 years. John's father, Phil DiNatale, was a career cop in the Boston PD. He became one of the lead detectives on the Strangler investigation. So you can kind of use this as your base of operations. Okay. Phil died in 1987, but he left behind a treasure trove of documents, which John keeps in his home office. Wow, so all of these Tupperware All of these boxes. boxes. This is everything. And when you say this is everything, so what does that really mean? Well, this would be uh, all of his diaries, journals, uh, personal papers, as it would be. It would be his investigative files for each individual murder, copies of all the diagrams. John showed me a black and white photo of his dad, Phil. In the photo, Phil's wearing a fedora. He's a little bit stocky. His left eyebrow is raised as if he's questioning something. You can see the resemblance to his son, who has some of that same old-school way about him. I asked John what made his father a good detective. Any investigator nowadays can jump on a computer and download information about people. Good investigators know how to get information from people, and that's the difference. And is that what your dad could do? Absolutely. You know, the expression is he could make people bring back things they never stole. Fildi Natale talked to countless people during the six years he worked on the Boston Strangler investigation, and he kept detailed records of many of those conversations. What about this one? So this is like a little blue handheld notebook, investigation of the murder of Ida Erga. Looking through the archive, I found the notebook Phil kept while investigating the murder of Ida Erga, Debbie's grandmother. Age 75, 7 Grove Street, top floor. Lived there 40 years. Wednesday, August 22nd, 1962. Detective Di Natale went to 60 Phillips Street, top floor. Sarah Connor, age 36. She stated that the evening they found the murdered woman, a young fellow, blonde, crew cut, about 150 pounds, 26 years, 5'6", five, 5'5", five, five, asked Mrs. Connor what happened. She said that an old woman was found murdered, and he said, are there many old women around here living alone? She stated she never seen that fellow before and wouldn't be able to recognize him. He said, are there many old women around here living alone? Hmm, that's kind of creepy, isn't it? Also in the archive were two cassette tapes. This is the untold story of the Boston Strangler by Philip J. D. Natale. Chapter one, page one. About halfway down.
Just a few years before he died in 1987, Phil dictated his recollections about the Strangler investigation. Uh, it started back in uh, June 14th of 1962, the first murder. The last murder was Mary Sullivan on, on Charles Street in Boston Back Bay, which was of January 4th of 1964. As I listen, I picture Phil sitting alone at a desk in his basement, reliving his memories of the case, one detail at a time. When she first moved in there, she had a son. In fact, he was the one that went back to the apartment and found a lion on the floor. When the Stranglings began in 1962, Phil Di Natale was looking for more in his career. He was a detective in his 40s, still working basic cases, robberies, simple assaults. Then when the first strangling victim was found, he was assigned to the case. This murder was, in my uh, police career, the greatest thrill of my life. This would be my first murder investigation. Professionally, this was going to be a murder case that he was working on. And so that, uh, that was big to him. He was going to John Di Natale is 64. He was 10 years old when the murder started. And he says he knew, everybody knew, that a strangler was loose in Boston. You needed to be living in a cave if you didn't realize women were being killed. And my dad's out hunting for this guy, and everybody's looking for him. I mean, it was a big manhunt. It was a manhunt of the century. And believe me, you've never seen so much work being done by the Boston's finest detectives. John Di Natale remembers his father, Detective Phil, working almost around the clock on the murders. I can recall my dad sitting at the kitchen table on Sunday. You know, back then, we went to church in the morning, we came home, and at noontime, we had lunch. And it was usually a, an eye-round roast beef, which was a big deal to have roast beef, and, and everybody ate. And then they dispersed, and my dad would kind of clean off the area, and he'd start doing his diagrams. Now, my sister Evelyn remembers coming home one day, and my father all of a sudden putting his hands across pictures, and don't look, don't look, don't look, Evelyn, because he had pictures of the murder victims. And, and she, she walked by, and of course you're going to look. You know, why wouldn't you? And she, she will always say... You know, they were burned into my memory. So, you know, so that was something that, you know, that always affected her. Going through Phil's archive, I was struck by all the details he meticulously cataloged. A hall carpet found askew, the color and placement of furnishings, the temperature, the day of the murder, the names of neighbors. Phil Di Natale was an investigator, but he was also a kind of biographer, he came to know each victim's life story. You wouldn't think a small notebook filled with a bunch of scribbled words would turn someone like Ida Erga into a flesh-and-blood human being, but it actually does. Reading the details of her life made Ida more than a name to me. It seems to have done the same for John. One side of me says, my God, you know, what was this poor woman thinking? When A, she's on her back, and he's right on top of her, and she knows, like, there's, a, there's an iron grip around me, and I'm not going to fight this guy, especially if you're 75 years old. I mean, how are you fighting back? You're not. You, you know, those one or two seconds before death, you know what's happening to you. Mm-hmm. It's petrifying. You know that you're done for. 
Yeah. All the legwork and documentation by Fildi Natali and the other detectives was one-sided. They got to know the victims of the crimes, but they learned next to nothing about the man who committed them. We were desperate for clues, and we listened. I'll listen to the garbage man if he has something to tell me, and I'll even be nice to the devil if he can give me the information that I'm looking for, or some kind of little evidence that could be helpful in bringing about the solution of the strangling. I look back at it now and think how very difficult it must have been for them. But at the time, I just thought they were keeping information from us, and they were. This is reporter Loretta McLaughlin, who covered the Strangler story for the Boston Record American. But there were no clues. They didn't say that, but there weren't. And that is the most outstanding characteristic of the Stranglings. They were perfect crimes. It was just unbelievable where we couldn't come up with any kind of a clue. It's just like the man would be the shadow. He just come into view and disappear. The problem is this. When you get the rape and murder of an elderly woman, it's, it's typically, for most of these agencies, very unusual. They don't have experience working this type of case. That's Mark Safrick. He was in the FBI for 23 years. He served the last 12 years as a senior profiler in the Behavioral Analysis Unit in Quantico, Virginia. He specialized in the homicides of elderly females. When I first got into the unit, I was assigned a number of complex cases. Two of those cases were elderly women in Colorado Springs who had been violently murdered and raped. Of course, I hadn't worked those cases before, so I went to the research literature to see what we as a collective organization knew about these types of cases. And what I learned was that there was almost no research in this area. In homicide cases, investigators begin by identifying possible motives. But when you get the rape and murder of an elderly woman, you typically don't have the things to work with that you would normally have in a a regular murder investigation. That is witnesses, motives of financial gain or jealousy or boyfriends or husbands, because a large percentage of these women are widowed. So the typical investigative avenues are not the ones that you would find here. Safrick found that in the sexual murders of elderly women, police often looked to sex offenders in the area. But Safrick's research indicates that those who are guilty of these kinds of murders usually don't have a previous record of sexual assault. We have 80% plus of these offenders that do not have that in their background. So uh, although most law enforcement agencies turn to that avenue of investigation first, I generally recommend utilize your resources and manpower in areas that are likely to generate uh, suspect or suspect information, and that's not one of them. Remember, Mark Safrick was doing this research over the last couple of decades. In the 1960s, this research didn't exist. So Boston police did precisely the thing Safrick says not to do. We've interrogated or interviewed over 2,500 sex offenders who have been released from mental hospitals and jails and institutions. And they took it one step further, a step that today would be illegal. 
Here's Loretta McLaughlin again. One time they rounded up all the lesbians in the city of Boston who had been under any kind of suspicion, thinking a woman might have done this, or they rounded up the gay men one time. They looked at priests and nuns as people who had possibly gone overboard over some sort of sexual misunderstanding. This is another suspect we'll we'll call X. Uh, He just likes his mother. This is an exchange from 1966 between Gerald Frank, a reporter who later wrote a best-selling book about the case, and Special Officer Jim Mellon, who was Phil Natale's partner. Mellon describes one of their prime suspects and why they thought he could be the strangler. Uh, he's believed impotent. The girls who have gone out with him have never seen him sexually moved. You mean he's never made a pass at them? He's never made a pass at them. He admits to having one or two relations with homosexuals, uh, not being, not playing the, uh, the major role, but the receiver. He admits to masturbation. This boy is 20, 20 years old. He admits to, mas- admits to masturbation on average of three or four times a week. Uh, refers to his mother by the first name, her first name. She's, he's 20 and she's 42. She could be rightfully uh, classified as an alcoholic. She's as the police cast a wider and wider net, the people of Boston were advised to take steps to protect themselves. We are advising the people of Boston to make sure that they have proper locks on their doors in good working order. We advise the people of Boston not to allow any person into their home until they are absolutely sure that they are a proper person. In 1963, Life magazine ran a photo spread illustrating some of the ways Boston women were dealing with the fear. There's one image of a woman lying in bed with two ski poles for protection. In another, a woman's placing a bunch of empty liquor bottles in front of her apartment door as a kind of makeshift alarm. But the scariest photo is of a dog in a young woman's living room, flashing its teeth while being trained to attack. The women of Boston were on the defensive. I just remember being afraid. You know, don't talk to strangers. This woman grew up six miles outside of Boston. She was just six years old during the Strangler murders. She's a writer and prefers to keep a low profile. So she agreed to talk to me, but asked not to be identified. To better understand what it was like to live in a community immersed in suspicion and fear, I asked her for one example, a story, about what life was like in Boston at the time. Somebody rang the bell. It was like just after supper. And we lived upstairs, and it was like the bell. My mother said, who is it? And he said he was wearing a trench coat and a hat, because that was the style then. And he had a briefcase. And I remember my brother said, the briefcase, that's the sign of the Boston Strangler. That's where he keeps his nylons. And we screamed. My sister and I screamed. It was terrifying. Their mother was even more frightened, so she called the police. Within minutes... 
There were th- it was there were three police cars. And he was just a traveling salesman. And he was a traveling salesman. He was. He was selling magazines. They brought him down to the station. And but are you no- suggesting the police got there so quickly because there was all of this heightened sense of absolutely? They weren't fooling around at all. I think everybody believed they were the next victim, and I had to sleep with the light on. I listened every night for creaks on the stairs, someone coming up to murder me. Did you sleep with anything for protection? Uh, Yeah, my rosary beads. (laughs) My wife works nights, and since the strangling, uh, these stranglings have taken place, she insists that I pick her up because she has a walk from the bus stop to the house. It's poorly lit, the streets are narrow, and uh, since I can't pick her up every night, I've, uh, I bought her a little ice pick, and I told her when she gets off the bus, grab a hold of it. Anyone comes near her, start screaming and don't let them touch her. In retrospect, the ice pick sounds irrational, almost comical. Like so many of the precautions women were taking, carrying an ice pick in a purse or jacket offered little protection from the strangler. He killed women in their homes, not out in public. Then again... Fear isn't necessarily rational. Strangulation is, of course, a way to get very close to the victim. Does it have anything to do with silencing the victim? With silencing the victim, having complete control, but also being intimate, being up that close and watching, you know, her pain and death, which obviously for these types is very sexualized. Mm-hmm. I wanted a better understanding of the fear of violence, particularly as it affects women. My name is Jane Caputi, and I am a professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Florida Atlantic University. Jane wrote about serial killers in her book, The Age of Sex Crime. She says it's a common condition of women in our society to live in fear, whether or not there's a killer on the loose. The very beginning of your book, like the very first thing you had that... Um, the Margaret Atwood? Can you, t- can you tell me what she said? Yeah. Margaret Atwood writes that when she asked a male friend why men felt threatened by women, he replied that, quote, they're afraid women will laugh at them. When she asked a group of women why women felt threatened by men, they said, quote, we're afraid of being killed. I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't know if I relate to this because I don't feel on a day-to-day basis like men are out to get me or that I'm at risk of being raped or murdered. But then I was thinking about the fact that I'm a single woman, I live alone, And I choose Mm -hmm. to live in this kind of quiet retirement complex away from the city. And when people ask me why I choose to live there, one of the things I often say, and I think I say it rather unconsciously, is that I feel really safe where I live. Right. It's peaceful. It's quiet. I don't feel like a daily threat either. You know, I have lots of male students who are wonderful. You know, all of that. I met friends, family members, uh, a partner who is male. Um, But... You know, if I'm, like, going to my car at night and it's in a parking garage, sure. This And that, that you would even bring up this idea that it changed your choice of living. That's terrorism, where you change your behavior because you're afraid something might happen to you. That is the absolute definition of terrorism. Until Jane used that word, I hadn't associated the Boston Strangler with this very modern idea of terrorism. I think about how many of us Americans can't help but be afraid of ISIS. The fear isn't about the statistical likelihood of being harmed. We all know that's low. It's about the lingering thought in the back of our minds. 
every time we go to a train station or a movie theater or a dance club. What if it happens again tonight? What if it happens right here to us, to me? The Boston Strangler preyed on the imagination as much as he preyed on individual women. It was unrelenting. September 1st, 1962. A killer struck again. Miss Jane Sullivan, 67, was found strangled in the bathtub of her three-room flat at 435 Columbia Road, Dorchester. With uncanny accuracy, the pieces of the deadly puzzle fit together to form an identical picture in Boston's morbid strangler murders. Just nine days after Ida Erga's murder, Jane Sullivan was found. She was the fifth strangling victim in ten weeks. Jane's friend was later quoted in the Boston Record American as saying this about her. She always looked lovely. She consistently wore her uniform going and coming to work. The regulation white dress, stockings, and shoes. Over it, she always wore a full-length blue coat and a stylish hat. Her coat would be buttoned to the neck, even on a summer day. And with her gray hair and blue eyes, she was striking in appearance. You'd be taken by her. You'd look twice. Jane's old apartment was far from the bus stop. Because she was a night nurse, she had to walk that distance alone late at night. She had often felt afraid, so she moved to an apartment in Dorchester. At the new place, the bus stopped right out front. On August 21st, Jane Sullivan returned home before heading to the hospital for her night shift. We think she removed her shoes and stockings there in the living room. Her street dress was on a hanger, hooked, hurriedly we feel, over her bedroom door. In her haste, she neglected to connect the chain bolt on her door. This is from an article Loretta McLaughlin wrote with another reporter, Jean Cole. They talked to the police, Jane's extended family, her neighbors, anyone and everyone they could find. They were trying to create a detailed account of how she might have been killed. We feel she started drawing water for her bath. She began to undress. Her watch is on a small table in the living room. Her shoes are just inside the open bathroom door. Her killer, to our thinking, was hiding inside the apartment some of this time. An ideal hiding place was available to him. A large closet faces her door. From the closet, you can see almost every part of her rooms. We feel he stepped from that closet, knowingly picked her stockings from where they lay, and garroted her, while her back was turned to him. The evidence says it happened in the kitchen, near the bathroom. We feel he assaulted her there, because blood stains begin there. Autopsy later could establish little, because her body was so badly decomposed. The blood stains lead on. Jane Sullivan's body was found in the fetal position in her partially filled bathtub 
Her flesh was so decomposed that investigators were unable to determine whether she had been sexually abused. But they did find a broom stained with blood. Now there were five women dead. Anna Slessers, age 55. Nina Nichols, 68. Helen Blake, 65. Ida Erga, 75. And Jane Sullivan, 67. They had all been killed in a period of two months, between June 14th and August 21st, 1962. All of these women were unmarried. They lived alone. The Strangler had gotten into their homes without forced entry. He sexually assaulted them with objects and strangled them with articles of their own clothing. He would pose each naked body after death. A gruesome still life. Minus the life. When I spoke to Mark Safrick, the expert on elderly female homicides, he discussed why these cases are especially upsetting and why they garner so much attention. When you get a case like this, it's much like the murder of a child. You know, if there had been the murder of, you know, mafia underlords, then uh, would you have had the same type of attention to that? Uh, Very unlikely. The community is in panic. They uh, demand that the law enforcement agency identify and arrest the perpetrator. You've got a lot of pressure from City Hall to get this case resolved. You know, the the thing is that nobody who has lived into their 70s, 80s, or 90s should have their life end that way in this vicious attack where they're sexually assaulted. You know, these many of these women were married for many, many decades. You know, the only person they were ever with was their husband. And here, in the twilight of their life, you know, to be attacked in this way, in this de- degrading, humiliating way is uh, very, very difficult for family members to deal with. And even for law enforcement officers who are seasoned investigators that have seen many murder cases, these types of cases really affect the, the investigators as well. It was a nightmare for the investigators, the victims' families, and for the women of Boston, the older women most of all. On December 5th, 1962, the case took another terrible turn. On that day, police found the body of Sophie Clark. The Sophie Clark murder raised a lot of questions. It wasn't absolutely certain that it was the strangler who had killed her. I mean, the strangler. And now everyone was at risk. The rituals of the Strangler were horrific, but the repetition also allowed a strange sense of hope that the police could catch the killer. It was a puzzle they could solve, eventually. With the Sophie Clark case, the investigation was turned on its head. The women of Boston, all the women it turned out, had even less reason for hope, and more reason to fear what was on the other side of the door. (laughs) 
Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbetts, and Taylor Dewicki. Special thanks to Emil B. Klein, Ben Avishai, Julia Botero, and Maleka Woluchem, and to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. The actors who appear in this episode are Carol Drews, Denise Cormier. Original scoring is by Allison Leighton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John D. Natale of D. Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil D. Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Next week on Stranglers. I found Sophie lying, sprawled out on our living room floor, motionless. The murder of Sophie Clark cast confusion over the investigation. It is totally out of character for a serial killer to make that kind of jump. That type of change in victim would tell me we're not dealing with the same guy. Plus, one woman's possible encounter with the Boston Strangler. He said he was Thompson, and he was here to do the painting. He said I was pretty, and he started talking real funny. He talked about how tall I was... That's next time on Stranglers. Stranglers.